Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. By keeping interest rates at or below zero for over a decade, central banks have created profound economic insecurity and financial fragility. That's the central argument of financial historian Edward Chancellor, who is my guest on this episode of the podcast. Chancellor is the author of a new book called The Price of Time. In the book, he argues that extremely low interest rates have caused unsustainable asset price inflation, including the recent bubbles in cryptocurrency and tech stocks. But it goes beyond that. According to Chancellor, near-zero interest rates are also largely responsible for the weak economic growth, low productivity, rising inequality, zombie companies, elevated debt levels, and the pension crisis that we've seen in many Western economies in recent years. Listen into the podcast for more. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so using Patreon. Details of how to do so are on the homepage of our website in the right-hand column. Edward, thank you for joining the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners a bit about yourself and your area of work? Um, well, I'm financial historian, journalist, and over the last 30 years, I've also worked as an investment banker and more recently as a professional investor for a large institutional fund manager. Thank you. Um, I've been reading your new book called The Price of Time, uh, which is about interest rates. Um, you've, may I congratulate you on choosing a good time to publish it because after having had uh, two decades of suppressed interest rates in many G7 economies, uh, they've come back to life this year. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I, I can't take credit for the timing because this book was a long time in the works and publication itself took about a year. So uh, the, the thrust of the argument of the book is that these extraordinary low interest rates were building up great tension in the financial markets and in the economies and in society at large. Um, and uh, if that if the book had come out a year ago, everyone would have said, oh, you know, Chancellor's hysterical polemicist or whatever. But now I think those um, those opinions are, well, becoming you know, more mainstream because we see markets unravelling. Yes. Let me start with the last chapter of the book, which uh, consciously echoes Hayek uh, and talking about the, the road, the new road to serfdom. Um, and that was Hayek's book, I believe, in the, from the 1940s. Uh, it's quite a gloomy prediction. Why do you think we're on the road to serfdom? Well, Hayek wrote that book during the Second World War at a time of um, you know, great um, you know, advance of the, of the government into all areas of life. And Hayek thought that they wouldn't reverse. And, I, and Hayek actually sort of turned out to be largely wrong. Um, there was a reversal of the government controls and and a you know something approaching a free market or what they used to call a mixed economy emerged after the second world war and was pretty successful and, and liberties and so on were protected my um argument in the book is that a, a free market depends on the really largely the operation of free market largely depends on what's happening to the most important price in the capitalist system, which is the 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 the, the, the rate of interest, and I, I my argument is that um, 
the suppression of interest rates in recent years down to zero and, and in some countries less than zero in Europe and Japan was um, actually sapping the vitality or, or, of the developed economies, but at the same time, as I say, building up financial problems that would require further and further intervention. And one might get to a point in which, you know, frankly, the the you know the cent you know the central actors or central banks in conjunction with governments were in effect controlling how capital was spent and so on and so forth. So, so, so traditional economic liberties would be would disappear. And bear in mind, I, I wrote all that before we actually had the sort of COVID lockdowns, which was a sort of, uh, you know, a road, uh, more than a road surfing, it was a sort of acceleration into surfing, uh, but, uh, but then, you know, largely reversed subsequently. But I, my thought was in particular in citing Hayek, because Hayek uh, was perhaps of all the great economists, the ones who paid most attention to in- interest and, and the functions and role it played and the dangers that arose from manipulating and keeping interest rates too low. Yeah. Um, in your book, you go back to the origins of, of, of money and you talk about the, the, the very long debates um, amongst philosophers, historians, economists, financiers about whether money should pay interest. And that you, you, you point out that several kind of leading philosophers were against the idea of any any interest on uh, payable of money. But you, I, I sense are more in the camp of those who, who argue that there, there is a kind of natural rate of interest to money, which maybe parallels what is, what is the natural return on certain real assets like farmland or property or shares in a business. Yeah, well, I mean, let's go back to the sort of early critics of, of interest or usury, as it used to be called. And, you know, the, and that, as I mentioned, you know, all the great... Most of the great intellectuals in history have inveighed against interest, and and you know perhaps you know the most famous being Aristotle, and Aristotle says you know that um, it that the charging interest is wrong and immoral because the lender is demanding back more than he is given in the first place, um, an unfair transaction, and this notion was then taken up by. Uh, the medieval scholars Thomas Aquinas and so forth, again arguing that 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 interest was unchristian uh, and immoral. Now, my um, problem with Aristotle, Aristotle's assertion, is that it would be true that um, interest would be unfair if someone lent something and immediately demanded a return something at a higher rate that would be an extortionate however uh, the the key point about interest is it is a loan for the use of a person's capital or goods or whatever you want to mention money over a period of time and aristotle ignores the dimension of time now i i mentioned that a a, a later a english medieval scholar called thomas of cobham so made good Aristotle's oversight by saying that the um, that the user, the the lender at interest, was a seller of time, and I say, well, that's a reasonable description of um, of, of interest, and I, and I named the book the price of time. Now, the medieval scholars then 
said, well, actually, time belongs to God. Well, okay, that's fine if if you believe in a sort of theocratic world. But in you know, come the Renaissance, then then time is seen as a personal possession, or even seen as a person of the individual's most important possession, because our lives are, so to speak, nasty, brutish, and short. In which case, having a price on time, or what you know, what psychologists and some economists refer to as time preference, uh, or or what you could even just call impatience, is actually a vital thing. Right, and, and time preference is this concept of the marshmallow test on, on children where the psychologist uh, famously asked children if they would uh, be prepared to trade in a, a, a marshmallow now for two in 15 minutes or something, and then some took up the bet and some some wanted to have the marshmallow straight away. And that's, that's uh, it's kind of a strikes a very and that's a that's a, that's how humans behave isn't it that's how we exactly. all behave we, we, we're I, all we're all torn between the two I, temptation I, of something now for something in the future a few years ago i i i did a I, I, we made a little short video with a friend of mine who's documentary maker and his we got his daughter we did a marshmallow test and we did the original you know the conventional marshmallow wait 15 minutes and you get another marshmallow so this you know this good girl Ida waited 15 minutes and yippee she got the extra marshmallow then we ran it again um the marshmallow test under conditions of negative interest where i said he the, her father said to her um here's a marshmallow but if you wait 15 minutes you're only going to get half a marshmallow and the girl would look you know pretty confused a few minutes and then she'll mm, I think I'll eat it <laughs> and and the, the important point I mean it was a good, good joke but the, the actual important point about that was that interest is also an inducement to save or, or, or to invest and if you get if you have no inducement if you have a negative interest you have no inducement you know no encouragement to save and you know and then you're your investments also become sort of distorted. You have the lot, the wrong rate of sort of expected return on your investments. Yeah, and and then in your in your book, you spend quite a lot of time talking about the the, the philosophers and economists of the of the eighteenth century, uh, and and the and the concept uh, that John Locke had of a natural rate of interest, and that that was quite a common um, understanding of the, at the time. It seemed to be. Really, what underpinned a lot of the way financial markets developed and 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 stayed really in place for for some time. Yes, I mean, I think one has to see Locke in the sort of context of seventeenth-century philosophers of natural rights, um, really sort of um, early Enlightenment thinkers, and the idea is you're moving away from a world in which the state uh, or or, um, or or the church governs behaviour. And and which um, people are allowed to, you know, an individualistic society in which people are allowed to uh, contract with each other without being, you know, uh, under great control. And this is sort of the ideas that find, you know, eventual fruition in Adam Smith's Wealth of Nation. And Locke is arguing against the usury laws that still existed in the 17th century, late 17th century, and at the time restricted interest um, to a maximum of six percent, and some um, some some people were arguing for lo- lower a lower maximum rate, and um, and Locke wrote this very interesting pamphlet in which he warns of all the problems that would come from artificially reducing interest below the natural 
know, the natural market level, so to speak. Um, and that really sort of prefigures some of the problems that we've seen in more recent years. Yeah, and and that and following Locke um, or around the time of Locke, I suppose that we had the, the first great bubble in in, in Amsterdam, the, the the tulip bubble, tulip mania, and then then the the John Law uh, episode of the, the Mississippi Company in France, where we became the, the first sort of giant uh, financial markets bubble, and we've repeated that uh, experience. Ever yes, since. So, so these these arguments are still still going on. Well, I mean, so we we'll delve into a time bit more. Too. So the the Tulip mania actually takes place in the 1630s. Um, and then the Mississippi bubble uh, in France in, in 1719, 1720, 300 years ago. Um, the important thing, and the point I try to make in the book, is that all the great speculative bubbles from the, um, from the, from the tulip mania onwards through to the current day uh, have been associated with times of easy money, when interest rates were low, and when sort of market liquidity was high. So there's, to my mind, and this, again, you know, is a point that Hayek would have made, um, that there is a, a monetary aspect to the bubble. They're not purely psychological. And what's interesting in particular about John Locke's Mississippi bubble was that John Locke, who, who, who was Scotsman who came to France, established the first central bank, um, replaced gold money with paper money and um and and issued money um uh, to buy in the french government debt um and also to to bring interest rates down which he did from about sort of 6 to 8% down to 2% and at the same time Locke controlled this company called the mississippi company in which and the the bank lent money to the mississippi company to buy up the French government debt. And so you, I, I describe that as a sort of first operation of quantitative easing. And what happened uh, was that, you know, tremendous bubble appeared in the Mississippi company stock. It went from, uh, it went from a 500 livre to 10,000 livre within a short space of time. The, there was a general prosperity, a great sort of luxury boom, you know, instead of the sort of, you know, luxury yachts and and supercars. There were you know people prancing around in 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 gold carriages and and the like, and a real estate boom. And and circumstances not very different from what we've seen of late. And then it all comes unstuck. The the money uh, that Locke's printed sort of seeps out into the real economy. There's a surge of inflation, and Locke, who who John Law, John, sorry John Law, John Law. Aside, who, who is also the, the the French finance minister, aside from being head of its France's largest company and also in charge of the central bank, he's also finance minister. So there's sort of slight conflict of interest, and and law has to decide whether to allow the inflation to continue, or whether to sort of to restrain and and diminish the circulation of currency and bring the 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 um, the inflation under control. And eventually he chooses um, a deflationary course and the Mississippi company stock falls about 90%. And, you know, there's a great uproar and Locke is, sorry, law is forced to leave the country. So I, and I bear in mind, I wrote this two or three years ago. I was saying, well, actually what 
law is doing is very similar to what central bankers are doing um, today or, or recently. And that actually sort of is quite problematic because it sort of suggests an inflation and a bust is around the corner. And I yeah. suppose I think we've, we've really got to that point now. So, so why, given that um, you know, the, these, these bubbles have occurred throughout history and, and anyone studying economics or financial history should know about them, why have we arrived at the point in the last 20 years where central bankers think that they can create wealth by reducing interest rates to zero or even below? Well, you say people should know about them, but that is not quite the same as saying they do know about them. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm not actually an economist by training. I'm, I, I was, you know, a, a historian uh, uh, as an undergraduate. Um, but I, what I understand is that economists, the current sort of academic training for economists requires um, no study of the history of economic thought. So, you know, the discussions of John Locke or, or um, even more recently Friedrich Hayek are are really um, are not are not are not known to you know a lot of the people professors and monetary policymakers uh, today and, and they and they also know very little economic and financial history but beyond beyond that they have you know, you know the the models that the um, but the modern economists use you know they're highly theoretical and they you know they they suggest um, rational expectations um, and they don't really allow that strange enough they don't actually incorporate a financial sector into them so they don't really believe in um, in asset inspective bubbles or asset price bubbles even you know even though we, and they don't really believe you know they don't really understand credit booms I don't think they really understand inflation either. So, I mean, if you think about it, over the last you know, 25 odd years, we've had the dot com bubble, the great credit bubble and bust, and we're now, you know, uh, uh, perhaps in the early stages of a great inflation. And and one has to say, as the Queen did when she visited the London School of Economics after the global financial crisis, why did no one see it coming? And and it, frankly, I mean. It, you know the histor- to my mind the historians and the sort of sharper market practitioners who had a knowledge of history did see it coming and and were sort of more or less prepared yeah um so so the the idea put forward by some central bankers and I, ben bernanke gets quite a lot of quotes in 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 your book um that low rates can boost economies uh and and uh, help uh create wealth is is just being debunked by uh, by what's happening at the moment well, I mean, it's a great, it's obviously a great test. You know, we've had this, you know, we had the global financial crisis. Um, and be- bear in mind, the global financial crisis, to my mind, was something didn't come out of nowhere. It, to my mind, it, it originated with, with the Federal Reserve, the US Central Bank's response to the dot-com bust. Because so after the dot-com bust, you know, the... U.S. stock market had fallen sharply. The sort of tech stock index was down seventy-five percent, and there were some concerns of deflation in in the U.S. of falling price level. And you know, to modern uh, modern economists, sort of trained, the only history they really know is actually the Great Depression. It's a bit like sort of you know English school children only knowing 
a bit about Hitler and a bit about Henry VIII. They they have a sort of very narrow frame. So and they're sort of imbued with this great fear of depression. So they. The Fed cut interest rates down to 1% in, in 2002. And that's, to my mind, sort of got the you know, the US real estate bubble going and so on. So, and that led to, you know, that was followed by the financial crisis. And then, and then really the central bank has doubled down. So, you know, rates didn't, you know, went from 1% trough to, to zero. And there's this huge uh, John Law style printing of money. And, um, and that, accelerated in the COVID lockdown period. And now we're at a situation where I, I think it's coming unstuck. Now, curiously... Uh, it's certainly London... coming unstuck. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to you from London. It's certainly coming unstuck here. It's quite incredible what's happening there. The Bank of England has really lost control of the, I think so. of the, I mean, of the system. I wanted to say that, I mean, what was amusing and, you know, the, the, um, was that last week Ben Bernanke was awarded the uh, Nobel Prize in Economics, uh, for his work into past historical crises. On the day in which you know, the, the Bank of England was, um, you know, was like a sort of boxer being sort of punched against uh, the ropes. And, the ba- and by coincidence, and a beautiful coincidence, the Federal Reserve itself reported a loss in the last quarter of $3 billion. Now, I mean, that's a relatively small sum, but uh, in the la- you know over the last decade since two thousand eight, the Federal Reserve has reported um, profits which have gone to the U.S. taxpayer of a trillion dollars. So everyone, you know, so it's as if Ben Bernanke turned the Fed into a sort of world's largest, least capitalized hedge fund. And now, after you know these great profits, the losses are coming. I mean, we won't. I mean, the, for particular reasons, it doesn't. You know, it doesn't matter. Um, you know that a central bank should produce losses or even lose its capital, but it's to my mind it's a sign that you know if the central bank is at the core of the financial system, if its own balance sheet is sort of ruined, it's telling you that something has gone wrong. Yeah, you 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 you, you draw parallels with natural systems in your book, and you talk about the um, the way. Um, Governments and uh, local authorities manage wildfires, and you you, you say that the, the the way really to manage wildfires is not to try and stamp them out completely, but it's to allow them to to happen on a regular basis to clear out the dead wood, the dead tree, you know, the the, the, uh, the, the unhealthy trees, and, and if you try and suppress wildfires completely, you risk a much bigger and more devastating accident or conflagration later. Now that that seems to be you know very much like the situation we're we're now in. Yeah, well, I hope not because um, I mean I, it, it. It does seem, but and and you know, I, I, over the last twenty twenty odd years, you know, I sort of followed the doc, you know, the, these various crises building up, and um, you know, I, I don't say this is a huge amount of pleasure uh, that you know what the recent evolution turn of events seem to sort of conform to my worst case scenario. Um, I think, um, I, you know, when I'm talking about, the, you know, firefighting and natural fires, um, the point is that complex systems are difficult to understand. And even when you, if you interfere with them, even with the best intentions, if you're US Forest Service and trying to put out fires, the danger is you don't quite know what the consequences are going to be. So that the suppression of forest fires uh, not only prevents some 
uh, trees from propagating, like the giant sequoia tree, for instance, or the or the jack pine. Uh, but it also leads to a buildup of undergrowth, weak forestry, and a higher risk of um, of actually more severe and uncontrollable conflagrations in the future. Now, in an, an economy is also, a, a, you know, we, we often forget that humans are actually <laughs> animals and our economy is actually a, a complex system, not, not, not so unlike um, you know, other, 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 uh, other species, other, other members of the animal and plant kingdom. And we intervene, if you intervene to prevent, um, you know, economic downturns, which is one of the things that a, that having a sort of paper currency allows you to do. Uh, the danger is, as I write in, in, in a chapter in the book, is that you arrest the forces of, of creative destruction. Uh, and I, uh, that, that's a, a term used by um, another Austrian economist called Joseph Schumpeter. And the idea is that, you know, the, the economy is it's constantly a process of evolution, of creation and destruction. So if you prevent, if you cut off, if you cut off the destruction, so the, the company bankruptcies and so on, uh, then the, you actually also prevent creation of new businesses, and and I I argue that that is to some extent responsible for the sort of slow economic growth. You, you probably read in newspapers, you know, in o- over recent years about these so-called zombie companies that um, that can't, don't make any profit but sort of don't go out of business are kept on on life support system by the by the low low interest rates but also if you go to the financial system if you prevent um if you sort of prevent if you sort of mitigate um if if a central bank comes in and sort of mitigates losses then people will respond by taking more risk it's it's what we call moral hazard so and and you know clearly you know uh, over the last 12 years or so, you could go back further if you wanted. Central banks have had this tendency, whenever there's problems going on in, in the financial markets, to come in and, so, so to speak, write a check, to buy the assets that are distressed. And um, that, I think, uh, combined with the fact that interest rates have been very low and people have needed to take more risk to get income, uh, has led to... Um, Problems that I don't think the regulators or the central bankers had had any proper understanding of, and I think you know you know what what we've seen uh, in Britain in the last three weeks with um, the gilts market, uh, long dated bonds crashing, and what's interesting, I mean, you know, one a twenty seventy three, you know, gilts are meant to be as safe as houses. That's why they're called gilts, gilt edged investments. Well, at twenty seventy three. Guilt fell. Yeah, the, in, the index link bond has gone down. Index link. It, it, it fell. It fell eighty five percent. Yeah. And yeah. interestingly enough, without any sort of default or severe deterioration in the governments, it wasn't pointing to a, a sovereign default. And, and actually, the the yield on this bond after it um, after it had uh, collapsed was only just over 1%. So you can see, you can see, and you know, at the beginning of the year, it was negative. And as I point out in the book, these very low interest rates have built up what, what we in 
uh, your listeners are not going to like this term because it's technical. It's called duration risk. And duration risk is the risk of an asset to changes in interest rates. And as interest rates went down to the lowest levels in history, we built up a tremendous amount of duration risk. And we also built up, as it and a lot of things one doesn't quite know. For instance, go back to the gilts market. It turns out that the pension funds, uh, who, for accounting reasons, uh, had reported uh, lower, um, higher liabilities, future payments, when interest rates came down, the pension funds uh, had gone into the gilts market and engaged in a in a strategy to sort of hedge their future liabilities by leveraging up these very long-dated bonds. So what you would have thought were the most prudent and boring uh, investors out there and best capitalized investors uh, actually turned out to um, to have an enormous amount of leverage. And, and, and as we speak, you know, three weeks after this problem first emerged, they they are you know we're still seeing the ructions and the Bank of England having to come in and 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 help with the 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 pension sort of unravel their their leverage positions and you've seen property funds where the investors are not allowed to leave them so these were all some of the problems that were to some extent envisaged uh, in in this book about the problems of ultra low interest and how it was actually frankly impossible to escape from them yeah and there are many other problems that you've put you you mentioned in the book from you know the, the emergence of uh, of speculation in cryptocurrencies to the 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 the, the recent uh, craze for um spac companies in the us that are companies that had no uh, particular uh you know business uh, in, in uh, specified but they were just acquisition vehicles for, for future capital gains and, and there is a, a long list of things that one could point out as kind of Weaknesses in the system that, that have been created by this extended period of yes, I mean, um, I say that interest, uh, to cite the American economist Irving Fisher, is an omnipresent phenomenon. Uh, it, it gets into all the cracks, as another economist says. So it's not it's not really surprising that the lowest rates ever should create what was called the everything bubble, a bubble in everything, and a bubble in what I call virtual wealth, wealth that, like cryptocurrencies or non-fungible tokens, um, that don't really represent actual genuine capital in the sense of producing any income or possibly being of any use, but just mere tokens of value. And, and um, I suppose my foreboding was that that this virtual wealth would disappear quite rapidly. And there's another problem that comes from that is that we've built our economy around the virtual wealth. So in a way, I mean, let's say just take... We, we, we being Western countries and, 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 the, Anglo, and the Anglo nations, it's not, not yes, I mean, true I, of China or... or no, I, I know I, China has its own credit problems. Yes, I mean, I yeah. do say yeah. the Chinese... The Chinese... I have a chapter on China, and the Chinese did import um, sort of easy money from the US because they pegged their currency to the dollar, and they've run with very low interest rates and had you know, the world's, you know, frankly, the world's greatest investment um, boom, one of the great credit booms, and you know, a sort of absolute mega real estate bubble. So 
I, I, and, and they, you know, yes, they, they, perhaps, you know, the Chinese still manufacture things. Unlike, you know, we, 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 our virtuality is, is to go in, you know, largely into services and this and that. Um, and, and, and perhaps that, you know, that's looking a, a bit more problematic for us. But I think China definitely ha- has, you know, severe problems ahead. Yeah. Now, towards the end of your book, you point out one country that did things differently after the 2008 financial crisis, which is which was one of the worst uh, countries worst affected, which was Iceland, because they, they, their whole banking system collapsed in, in 2008. Uh, and they took a different stance. Uh, could you perhaps you could explain what they did and, and why you think it's interesting? Um, well, we're, we're always told if you criticize, you know, the monetary policy, the very low rates after 2008, after the Lehman bankruptcy, you're told, well, you know, there was no other way of doing it. There was no choice. And, you know, if if we'd gone, if if we hadn't, you know, lowered the interest rates and had the quantitative easing, then there would be mass unemployment. We'd had another Great Depression, so on and so forth. So you have to give the central bankers their due. Well, as it turns out, little old Iceland had built up the most phenomenal uh, foreign um, foreign debts uh, in you know in, in no no one partied during the credit bubble like the Icelanders, and they were left with I think sort of foreign debts of eight uh, of ten times GDP. They had you know they, their 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 major banks had assets larger than Icelandic GDP, um, and they frittered it away buying sort of you know fairly useless acquisitions, so on. Um, then the crisis came. Iceland being outside the European Union, no one really came to the Icelanders' help. And so what the Icelanders did was quite interesting. First of all, they basically let their banks go bust. They didn't protect them. They um, they protected domestic depositors, but they really defaulted on the overseas debt, or they allowed the banks to default on their overseas debt. So this is really coming close to, uh, you know, what is called a, a debt jubilee, which, which is, you know, ha, you which know, was common practice in in, in yeah, times. Well, we we had debt. You know, the the Babylonians had debt jubilees, and the Israelites had debt jubilees, and so what then happened is that the, the you know the you had a severe banking crisis. And interest rates actually rose rather than fell. The currency collapsed, and um, then things sort of stabilized. They they helped. They supplied. They supported uh, home buyers and and people who are paying mortgages rather than rather than creditors. Whereas our system was designed to sort of ha- help the fat cats on uh, on Wall Street. And the hedge fund managers and so forth, and and if you played it very well, you could make you know huge amount of money in two thousand and nine, two thousand you know, in those following years, and that's you know as I argue in the book, you see, I argue that these very low rates have actually increased inequality, which is sort of contrary to the you know millennia long view of, of of interest. Anyhow, so the Iceland and then the Icelandic economy, so it had its sort of Schumpeterian bust, it had its debt jubilee and then the economy recovered and and within uh, it had its yeah it, it, within within you know, eight or nine years after the financial crisis the economy was was growing and and iceland you know iceland was doing fine it had rebalanced away from finance back towards tourism and you know tech and so on and so forth so it it really 
I know it's very unpopular view. This item, what's called the liquidationist view, um, but as I, as we've been discussing earlier, it's a sort of idea of nature, and and Iceland seems to have come out on top. So, but it comes was, with, it comes with things like capital controls and restrictions on the you know the flow of money from one market to another, which has been dogma for the last you know the the, the free flow of capital has been dogma for fifty years. So that would be a, a massive uh, change in. Yeah, I mean, for, I mean, I suppose for you know, from the late, I can't remember the British got rid of the their capital controls when Mrs. Thatcher came to power. Um, yeah, so for, yeah, forty four, years. 40 years. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I have to say, I, I, you know, I think that there were moments of capital controls, for instance, in the last decade, like in, in Cyprus, for instance, um, and my hunch uh, is that over the next decade. We're going to have capital controls back, partly because you know we, as you see, look at what's happening to sterling at the moment. Inflation's going up, government finances are pretty stretched. One of the reasons for capital controls is to trap money in the country, and so the government can force you to lend that money to itself. But if you have capital flight, and everyone can have it now, if you have a sort of account on rev, you know, an app, a Revolut app or a Wise app, you can actually hold your sort of your ready money in a foreign currency. So capital flight is very easy nowadays, but it makes this uh, policy of, of keeping interest rates below inflation, what we call financial repression, which helps pay off the government debt, very, you know, quite difficult. So I, I have, I mean, I've been thinking this on and off, you know, since the global financial crisis, that capital co- controls would come at some stage. And I think, you know, you see the fracturing of the global financial system, you know, China going one way, Russia another, Americans, Europeans in another way. So I, I think financial globalization will be the um, you know will will be, will be the you know the come to an end. victim. Well, yeah, it's coming to an end. I mean, one end. can get these calls wrong, but I think it's coming to an end. Yeah, Edward, thank you very much for a very interesting discussion. It's a fascinating book. I really enjoyed reading it, and I look forward to seeing. Uh, whether the great experiment with zero interest rates has finally come to an end. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support our work, You can do so via Patreon. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website. Finally, please join us soon for our next episode.